0: Children, you'll notice in the bulletin tonight your words that you're listening for as you listen along with the rest of us to uh, our message and sermon. The words there in the bulletin are mute and sign, demons, Satan, cast out, yes, those are two words, but we'll put those together, for, against, and Jesus. All right? All right. Well, Luke was a doctor. Uh, He was also a historian, and he wrote like a lawyer who was attempting to prove, as we've talked about since uh, we began our study of this gospel, he was writing to prove that Jesus was the Christ the long-awaited, much-anticipated Messiah. He was the Son of the living God. He was the Son of David. He was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And He had come to establish His everlasting kingdom, uh, to set His people free from uh, the bondage of their sin, uh, the fear of death, as well as the tyranny of Satan, all through the forgiveness of their sins, and to rule and reign in their hearts and lives forever. A pretty significant task for Luke. Um, And if you'll remember from our very first sermon back some 42, 43 weeks ago, yes, it's been that long, uh, Luke went back to the very beginning he went to find uh, everyone he could. He went to investigate everything he could, everything at his disposal from, the, from, from pre-birth to post-death of the Lord Jesus. All of his sources could be checked. His eyewitnesses could be questioned. Uh, anybody that wanted to could go to them, and they would affirm or deny whatever it was that he had written. And while the, a third, we said a third of his material was unique, two-thirds are similar to others within the New Testament, and so they could be laid side by side, and, and of course they could uh, be compared for, uh, to determine the veracity of that which he wrote. And he took all of that information that he had gleaned over that period of time, and he compiled it into what he says was an orderly and concise summary. That means that he organized the events and the conversations in such a way that that it was logical. Uh, Everything was in a logical manner, and that being logical would help him accomplish his purpose for writing. Now, Theophilus, to whom he wrote was a Gentile who had been taught the things of Christ, and many believe he was, of course, a believer. But as as is the case for many believers, there were times when Theophilus doubted. He struggled with doubt, like you and I struggle with our doubt from time to time. And so Luke wrote in order that Theophilus could be certain or would be certain. And the facts being the facts, he, he wrote what had happened, and but but all of those things had deep, significant, um, theological, redemptive, and, and salvific meaning to them. And you may remember this, that he used the word accomplished in verse 1 of chapter 1, and, and it carries the idea of fulfillment. So what he's doing to help Theophilus with his doubt is to say that what he had compiled and summarized was actually the story of the fulfillment of everything that the Old Testament had, had been pointing to all along. So he was writing and, and, and really doing nothing more than providing an account of how God had fulfilled the promises we find in Genesis 3, Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, uh, 2 Samuel 7, and Jeremiah 31. He was also writing of how God had fulfilled uh, the prophecies that we find, for example, in Isaiah chapter 9, Isaiah 52 and 53 and, and 61, just again to name a few. He was writing to show that Christ had fulfilled the law that God had given His people at Mount Sinai. Everything that he was writing, everything that he he spoke of was fulfilled in in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus. And in this chapter, in chapter 11, verses 14 to 28, what we have is a a very, uh, it's a microcosm of what Luke is doing throughout his gospel. It's a small, it's basically a case inside of a case, and what he's trying to show is that there is evidence that demands a verdict, to borrow Josh McDowell's title from the old book uh, that he wrote many years ago. And the fact that there's evidence that demands a verdict, that, that there follows that there is also a choice to be made. And the choice is, is simple believe or don't believe, accept or reject, before or against, gather or scatter, live or die. And in the process, he's very clear that there is no in between, there's, there's no middle ground, there's no fence to ride on. A, a position or stance of ambivalence is, is not allowed, it's not an option. And so he's presenting Theophilus with this choice, and he is presenting us this evening with that choice, and he is presenting as he presents everyone with that same choice who have heard the gospel and have heard the good news of the coming of the kingdom of God. And I've broken this down into four points as we walk through this this evening, these several verses. We're going to look at the confirmation, we'll look at the case, the choice, and the consequence. Right? The confirmation, the case, the choice, and the consequence. And of course, as is our custom, let's go to the Lord in prayer before we uh, jump in any further. All right? uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word and grant us all the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth regarding the choice before us. Awaken our attention and convict us and challenge us And then, as always, refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through the gospel. I'm weak and needy, unfit for this task, so in in my weakness would you be strong and would you grant me support and strength in the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace and do something good for you this evening. Help me communicate clearly and with fervency, fluency, and grace for the sake of Christ and His church. And it's in His name I pray. Amen. And amen. Evidence is defined as an outward sign or indication. It's also defined as something that furnishes proof or gives testimony of. It's also something defined as being conspicuous, which means obvious to the mind or eye. Today, evidence remains very important within the courts of our legal system. But we've seen over the last seven or eight years that when it comes to the court of public opinion, in which people make determinations and provide commentary on events both past and present, and when it comes to debates within uh, or, or debates on social and political issues that take place in the public square, evidence, more often than not, is relegated to a position of being inconsequential and irrelevant. More often than not, in the court of public opinion, people are accused, tried, and convicted primarily via social and television media before all the facts or evidence is before them or before it's been presented. And then within debates in the social and political issues of our day, claims are made and those claims are expected to be accepted as true solely on a verbal statement or an accusation made without any corroborating evidence whatsoever and sometimes and many times even regardless of the testimony or the evidence to the contrary. And we feel like that is new, when in reality it's not. Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun. And our passage tonight proves that very point. Jesus had been proclaiming the good news of the gospel far and wide. He had been proclaiming the coming of and the nearness of the kingdom of God. And the disciples had already, they've already correctly identified Him as the Son of the living God and the fulfillment of Isaiah 61. He was, in fact, the one whom the Spirit of the Lord God was upon. He was the one the Lord had anointed to bring good news to the poor and had been sent to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who were bound." and his healing of the sick as we've seen throughout the gospel his healing of the sick and his casting out of demons were signs that validated and authenticated who not only who he was but what he was proclaiming the message that he was preaching far and wide and this was exactly as God said it would be uh, in Isaiah chapter 35, though, though both of these passages refer to uh, spiritual renewal. We can't separate the spiritual from the physical at all. And, and, in in Jesus' day and, and even in the consummation of all things, uh, when He returns, uh, God says through Isaiah, say to those who have an anxious heart, be strong, fear not, behold, your God will come with vengeance. Vengeance. With the recompense of God, he will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. So when Jesus casts out this demon who had been, who had been tormenting this gentleman for, for how long we don't know, but he'd been tormenting him and, being, and keeping him from being able to speak. And so when he heals him, when he, when he casts the demon out and when he heals him, and the man begins to speak, and I think very, very well likely begins to sing with joy, it's an unmistakable and irrefutable confirmation. It's unmistakable and irrefutable evidence That He was the Christ. And the people were right in their response to, to marvel and wonder and admire what He had just done. This amazing sign of not only His power, but His salvation of His people. They were right in what they were doing. But as usual, there was a group. There were some in their presence who were naysayers. Luke is kind and lets them remain anonymous. Matthew calls them Pharisees. Mark calls them scribes. But regardless, they were bound and determined not to believe. And in verses 15 to 22, we see them bring their case before the crowd who was going to serve as their jury of their peers... And they were going to bring charges against Jesus, who, as usual as well, was going to put on a stellar defense on his own behalf. The prosecution, again, cannot or could not deny the reality of the evidence. It it was undeniable and unavoidable because the man was standing right there in the presence of everyone talking to others in real time. He had been healed. And in verse, and as a result of that, so the evidence being so stark, they had to come up with a strategy. And they came up with a two-point or two, yeah, two-point plan or strategy to suppress the evidence. And in verse 15, we see their first strategy, and it was to attack Christ's character. Again, something we see common today. If you can't discredit the evidence. You must discredit the source. Right? Irrefutable evidence, so let's go for his character. So rather than deny the miracle, they, take, they try to take um, the focus off the miracle and place it upon Jesus, and they say that he, he may have done the miracle and did do the miracle. Okay, we'll give you that, but he did it in the power of Satan, not in the power of God. Their goal was to present him as working on the behalf of the power of darkness, rather than the power of light, and bottom line is they were saying, he's evil, not good. So they're going to go right after him, right after his character. Then in verse 16, we have another part of the prosecutorial team uh, presenting the second part of this strategy, and which is to, to basically claim that they're really the evidence was insufficient. We need more than just this one man. There there has to be something else. And not to mention the fact, because he could have regained his his speech. That could have been something medical. It could have been something natural. And what they really wanted was something supernatural. They wanted something that could only be explained supernaturally, like, like maybe the sun and the moon stopping like in Joshua's day. Or fire falling from heaven, as in Elijah's day. The irony, of course, is he's not the only one. He's not the first one. How many times have we seen people healed and demons cast out since we began the gospel? There's plenty of evidence. He was simply one of countless numbers that the Lord had ministered to since the Spirit had anointed him at his baptism. So Jesus, at this point, they've presented their case flimsy as best, as he will point out, and he begins his defense, and, and it's born out of the fact that he knew their thoughts. And there's an entire sermon in that phrase alone. Nothing is beyond the scope of Christ's knowledge. As David wrote in Psalm 139, he knows us. He knows when we sit down and when we rise up. He discerns our thoughts from afar. He searches out our paths and our lying down and is acquainted with all our ways. And then he says, even before a word is on our tongue, behold, the Lord knows it altogether. And so he's ready. And his first point is simple. His argument is, your argument is illogical. He says, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a divided household falls. And if Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebub. It makes absolutely no sense for Satan to give anyone the power to cast out one of his own demons. It makes no sense at all. That would be counterproductive and ultimately self-defeating. Why would he, why would he allow someone to, to free someone that was under his captivity? Why help the enemy? Why give up ground? Why deliver someone you were going to destroy? It would be like if, if you play basketball, Marin, it would be like if, if, if you scored a basket for the other team. Or Grandma, you and Oliver playing baseball it would be, and, and Eli, it would be like you striking out on purpose with the bases loaded and the game on the line. It makes no sense. It was illogical. It was irrational. Why would he deliver someone he was trying to destroy? And the second point he makes is to say that their argument is not only illogical but it's contradictory. He says, and if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out, therefore they will be your judges. Some apparently within the synagogues and within the communities had been casting out demons themselves. They had been performing exorcisms. So the whole point is if Jesus cast out demons in Satan's name, well, they must have been casting out demons in Satan's name as well. And so he told them, listen, go ask your friends in whose name they've been casting out demons. Let them tell you if they've been casting them out in God's name or in in Satan's name. And then if you receive what they say about themselves, then you need to receive, you know, if you believe, if they say we've been casting them out in God's name, then you must believe that I've been casting them out in God's name. You must be consistent if they're casting them out in the power of God then so am I and then he moves in for the kill he says but if it is by the finger of God that I cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you and he has them right. he uses the language from Exodus 8 and they would recognize this language if you will remember Moses and Aaron are in this battle royale with Pharaoh's magicians, and finally the magicians get to this point where they just look and they say, listen, um, we can't produce these same miracles that that Aaron's producing because Aaron's producing them by the finger of God. But they would also remember the very next line that says, but Pharaoh's heart was hardened. And he would not listen to them. What Jesus has, had been doing and was doing and had done in their presence was due to the power of God. He was the Messiah. And they could push back as much as they wanted to. But all they did in pushing back, the, the more they pushed back, the more they revealed that their hearts were hard. The kingdom of God had come. They were in the midst of royalty, and yet they refused. Right? The king had come to inaugurate his kingdom, but they had refused to bow, and they had refused to confess that he was Lord. So the problem, ultimately, in the end, was not with Jesus, the problem was with them, the problem was theirs. And so in verses 21 to 22, he makes his closing argument. I'm going to summarize this. He, basically, he says, look, Satan is strong. And he, as the ruler of this world, has been in charge for a very, very long time. And he has kept a tight rein on those he possesses and those he has held in bondage. And he's done so through the cosmic powers and spiritual forces of evil that He controls and are at His disposal. Then He says, but I am stronger than Him. I am more powerful than Him. I've come to claim my own. I've come to claim the spoils of war who are the souls of those who are mine. I've come to set captives free and I've and what I've done for this man is just the beginning. It's a small victory in this larger war. I'm about to do far greater things. And notice what he's really doing is, is repeating what, what he said in Matthew 16. He just says it differently. Right? Christ is, is not on the defensive. He, he's not in a defensive posture defending the kingdom of God from the kingdom of Satan. Christ is on the advance. The kingdom of God is on the advance. It's advancing forward. He is the stronger one who is attacking the gates of hell, and the gates of hell will not prevail against Him. Gates are meant to keep enemies out, to keep the unwelcomed out, right? And the gates are not going to keep Christ out because He is the stronger one. And that's why it leads to an obvious choice. The evidence was obvious. And while they may have been acting like, right, like, like many do, they had been acting like they were still trying to decide who he was and, and what he had come to do, the reality was they, they had already decided. It was all a game. They weren't just unsure and hesitating and wanting to make a thoughtful and wise decision, which which should happen, which we should do. They were hesitating because they didn't want the decision that they had already made to become public. They're hiding. And what was that decision? What was the decision that they didn't want to make, that they had already made? And Jesus makes it clear in verse 23. He says, whoever is not for me... Or with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Very clearly. You can be on the winning side or not. You can be on the winning side or the losing side. You can choose to believe me or not to believe me. You can choose to accept me or you can choose to reject me. Trust me. Don't trust me. Live die gather gather others into the safety of the kingdom or spend your time making sure people scatter and run from the truth but you can't remain neutral Right? there are no Switzerland's in this battle you can't remain on the fence there's no middle ground There's no third option. Indecision is actually a decision. Again, it's one thing to take your time and be thoughtful and appropriately weigh the evidence. But there comes a point where your questions and your investigation and your need for more evidence becomes an excuse to avoid making the choice that has an eternal consequence. And Christ, well, and we, we ask, okay, well, why does the choice have to be made? And then in verses 24 to 26, he uses another illustration to answer that question. He says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none. It says, I will return to my house from which I had come. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. And his point of the illustration is this. If a demon who had possessed a man leaves, okay, voluntarily leaves, he isn't cast out like the one uh, that was before us at the beginning of our passage. And this man goes and takes his newfound freedom to, um, and, and makes a choice to try his hand at morally improving himself. Um, of making better choices, of treating other people better, abstaining from certain behaviors and beginning new and better habits, the demon would eventually come back and bring seven others with him, and he'd be worse than he was before. Because the man, even though the demon left, was unable in and of himself to to pick up from there, to take it from there and do what is needed, or to do what needed to be done, because the man needed more than to be reformed. He needed to be renewed. He needed more. He needed more. We need more than external re- renovation. We need heart transformation. And that only happens by grace, through faith, in the Lord Jesus Christ. It only happens through the gospel. In the words of Philip Ryken, he says, When we try to reform ourselves, it may seem as if we're making progress. We think we're in spiritual recovery, but unless we put our faith in Christ, we do not have His Spirit living within us where the Holy Spirit dwells, no evil spirit can enter. And then J.C. Ryle puts it this way He says, The house must not only be swept, a new tenant must be introduced. The devil must not only be cast out, the Holy Spirit must take his place. Christ must dwell in our hearts by faith and is our only hope. And so then Luke, what Luke does in verses 27 and 28, he, he shows the consequence of choosing Christ. Right? We, we must make a choice. The case is obvious, the evidence is present, and that leads us to this obvious choice that we must make. And what's the, what's the consequence of choosing Christ? And he provides this example. Right? The consequence is blessing. Luke says, as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But he said, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? The woman's been watching. She's been listening. She's been following this back and forth between this group of naysayers and Jesus. And they've presented her, their case and he's presented his case, and and she sees and weighs the evidence, and she bursts out in praise, and she couches this praise in the form of praising Mary. Just as, by the way, Mary said would happen, right, back in chapter 1, but the woman basically said, man, it would be great to be your mom. But Jesus responds, and he doesn't, he doesn't get on to her. He says, you're right. It would be great to be my mom. <laughs> um, but there's more to it than that. Right? There, there's more, way more to it. That blessing of her carrying me pales in comparison of the blessing that comes from hearing and doing the Word of God. As a matter of fact, that's why Mary was blessed. Mary wasn't blessed with an eternal motherhood because she was a person or a woman or um, a mother. She wasn't blessed with eternal motherhood at all. She was blessed because she heard the Word of God and kept it. She heard the Word of God, she believed it, she acted in faith, and she obeyed. There was faith and trust and obedience to the Word of God. And that blessing, Jesus says, that blessing is available to everyone who will come and place your faith in me. Blessing only comes when we do so. We're blessed when we hold to and cling to Him and His Word, and we live lives in fruitful obedience. It's as we hear and keep the Word of God that we experience life and life more abundant. And there really is only one thing that I would ask you to consider tonight. The application is pretty clear and concise And I want to use Philip Rikens' words again. He's much more eloquent than I ever could be. And and it is a little bit longer than I usually like to read, but I I believe it is so worth it. I tried to figure out a way around it, and I couldn't. Brothers and sisters, listen to these words. We are either for Jesus or against Him. If we are for Him, then His Spirit lives Inside of us, and our soul is secure. But if we are not for Jesus, then someday Satan will come and take possession. Moral reformation without spiritual regeneration leads to demonic domination. People who try a little harder to live a little better, need to know this, it will never work. And in order to experience real and lasting spiritual change, we need something more. He says more than personal advice or a self-help program or a recovery group. Not even casti- He says not even casting out a demon is enough. What is needed is the indwelling Holy Spirit, whom, by the way, we saw last week, right? Is uh, Jesus has promised to give the Holy Spirit to whomever will ask. He goes on to say, we need to pray for the stronger one to give us the supernatural, transforming grace of the Holy Spirit, who alone can appra- replace our lust with purity, our worry with with trust, our greed with contentment, our anger with patience, our profanity with peace, and our addictions with selfless zeal for the glory of God. And he wraps up this way, he says, there can be no vacancy in the heart, there is no joint tenancy, it is either Jesus or the devil." And if we take our last four weeks, okay, let's, let's look at Those of you, that if, if you haven't been here, you, you got to go back and listen, and this will make more sense. But if you haven't, if, if you've been here for the last four weeks and we put all these things together, we've learned this. We may, we may determine to love our neighbor better. And we may determine to read our Bible more, and we may determine to pray more intentionally and, and fervently, and fervently. And we can add whatever spiritual disciplines we want, and we can add whatever moral, moral behaviors that we can manage and accomplish in our own power with minimal effort, and we will simply, brothers and sisters, we will simply be rearranging the decks of the Titanic of our lives. Unless we're regenerated and transformed from the inside out. Our love for neighbor and our time spent with the Lord that is necessary, our time reading the Bible and praying and is necessary and 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 spiritual disciplines and, and, and our moral activity is all fruit, not the root of our salvation. It is evidence. It's evidence of a transformed heart. And evidence matters. And that heart trans- transformation, again, only takes place through the power of the gospel. To borrow the words from Deuteronomy thirty nineteen, life and death... Blessing and curse has been laid before us, set before us tonight by the Lord in this passage. May we choose Christ. May we choose Christ in order that we may live. Let's pray together.